0: so hopefully by the end, I'll be all toasty. Uh, I think I will, because uh, Paul gets into it really good today. Uh, so we're going to start a brand new series focused on the book of Galatians. And uh, so if you have a Bible or if you have your phone, kind of open up to Galatians 1. Uh, it is, uh, we're just going to kind of dive right in want to give a little background uh, as to this book and uh, it's proper that we kind of put it in context so that we can uh, know a little bit more and have a, a sense of grounding before we dive in. Uh, he writes this letter to churches, a group of churches that Paul had uh, birthed and established in, uh, in uh, southern Galatia or, or modern-day Turkey, so kind of southern Turkey. And uh, the time frame of this letter was about 49 to 50 A.D., and it was written right before kind of a famous council meeting that the early church had that we find in Acts 15, where uh, there was a little contention between two uh, emerging groups uh, in the church, the Gentiles and the Jewish followers of Christ. And they had, uh, we'll get into the the fine details of it, but they had kind of a different view of things, and it caused a little controversy. And more and more, it increasingly frustrated Paul And and I would submit that this is probably the letter he wrote right before that meeting to resolve uh, these issues. And so uh, that's where the context of this letter is. Uh, This letter is known as the Magna Carta of the Christian faith, coming out from under the law and into a new covenant with God made by Jesus Christ. This short letter from Paul is packed with dynamite. We see it's a, it's a single letter. You could probably read it in a half hour. It is small, uh, but just as a small um, bit of dynamite can blow up a whole building, Galatians is that type of book. It is a small book, but it's packed with spiritual dynamite. Uh, we can't read the first 10 verses without feeling that something utterly important is at stake for Paul. The whole letter, like I said, is short, and uh, this, this book is about living by faith. If you wanted to know kind of what the theme of this whole book and kind of the theme over the next uh, few weeks is, is that, uh, is living by faith and living in freedom. It answers the question, how can I truly be free? Free from guilt, shame, free from fear and doubt, free from sin, bondage, free from uh, just always trying and never quite getting there. I don't know if you have ever felt that feeling. <laughs> but Galatians, like I said, is spiritual dynamite. Some people think that freedom comes from keeping the rules. Do good. Try harder. Obey the golden rule. Do what your pastor, bishop, priest tells you to do. Um, light a candle, say a prayer. This list is endless because of the endless creativity of humanity to create conditions by which they want to feel that they need to participate in their own healing or reconciliation with God process. But rule keeping always fails in the end because you can never be sure you've done enough. Man, if one prayer is good, why not two? And so we can begin thinking that freedom comes by being perfect. Man, if I could just get perfect, I will finally be free. On the other extreme, there are those that say freedom comes by throwing off all the rules. Do what you want. Have a blast. You only go around once. If it feels or seems good to you, then do it. Do whatever you want. That... Is true freedom, but in the end, what we would call hedonism—that example, hedonism—cannot survive, cannot satisfy either. You end up exchanging one form of slavery for another form of bondage. But if legalism, trying to find wholeness and keeping rules, doesn't work, and if hedonism, the pure pursuit of pleasure regardless of the rules, if that doesn't work, where can we find true freedom? Galatians offers us a simple yet compelling answer. Freedom comes not from rules or lack of rules, but in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. The only true freedom is the freedom that comes from knowing Him as forgiver and leader of your life. Those whom Christ sets free are what? Free indeed. The secret of the Lord is with those who have been broken by the cross and healed by the Spirit. If you want to know how one comes to know Christ, is that you're broken by the cross. We come to Him realizing our brokenness, our sin, and yet we're healed by the Spirit. God does supernatural surgery over your life to heal you of those things in your life. Galatians exalts these two things. The cross of Christ is the only way a person can be made right with God, and the Spirit of Christ is the only way a person can obey God anything that diminishes the beauty and the all-sufficiency of what happened on the cross of Christ is anathema to our author Paul. Paul clearly wants believers to understand that they can live the supernatural life only by surrender to and reliance upon the life of Christ and the power and transforming grace of the Holy Spirit. The key to walking in freedom from law, from works, from the world, from the devil, from the flesh, is to walk, directed and enabled by the Holy Spirit, rather than trying to keep the law or a list of rules. So that's a little setup, brief. We could probably talk about a whole setup for another hour, but we're going to dive in, so let's go. Galatians 1, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Christ Jesus. And God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Man, that's a packed introduction, isn't it? I mean, sometimes you ever write a letter... And I always kind of struggle what to say on the front end. You know, you ever, I don't I, I know for me, when I'm trying to type an email, and I really want to get, you know, it's a little more serious, not just kind of a fluff email, and you sit down and you try to think, God, well, how am I going to start this? And you're like, hey, what's up? Or, hey, good morning. No, that sounds weird. All right. Um, and sometimes that little intro sentence, because you're like, hey, I'm maybe getting to some some uh, maybe serious matters, or some uh, sometimes that little intro for me is really hard. But Paul has no problem with a packed intro at all. Uh, Paul, he says he's an apostle. That means one sent with delegated authority. He asserts that he was not appointed by men or elected by men or appointed by a council of men, but he says that he was chosen and sent by Jesus himself. And that will become uh, important a little bit later, next week. But he wasn't chosen by men. He was chosen by Christ. And uh, here's kind of the map to give us a little, uh, to give us a little sense. Um, here's uh, during Paul's kind of first missionary journey out of Antioch. He goes with Barnabas, and he travels around Cyprus, and he goes up to Galatia. And so those are the four churches that he's writing to, Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. So, uh, then Paul gives this kind of richly packed sentence, kind of packing in almost the whole gospel in one sentence, um, and, uh, and he greets them centered on Christ, the gospel, not just reminding them, he didn't remind them of their friendship, hey, we're friends, right? No, 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 we're all united because of one thing, Jesus. So, as I kind of start off this letter, uh, let's just be clear who we're centered upon, and what brings us actually together—Christ and the gospel. So then, uh, but right then, after this little intro, it's simple. He kind of goes right in. Paul is so concerned for their spiritual welfare that he jumps right into the heart of the letter, even in verse six. Verse six: I'm astonished. That you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there is some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So what's going on here? Well, like I said, in the first, first missionary journey, Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel, established these local churches in Galatia. He taught them uh, these new believers the basics of what it means to follow Christ. He appointed leaders, and then he would move on uh, to the next town to repeat the process. But sometime after he left, there was continually a group of Jewish Christians, converts from Jerusalem, who came into the region claiming to speak for the original apostles in Jerusalem. So they claim their authority is from the apostles. And over time, they spread rumors that Paul was not a real apostle and that he had not preached a full or complete gospel. They could say, man, Paul wasn't part of the original 12, man. I mean, he kind of came out later. We come from the apostles in Jerusalem. You need to believe us. In particular, they told these young Galatian believers that they needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. That came as an unnerving shock, no pun intended. Anyway, um, but since circumcision was essentially a Jewish practice connected with the Old Testament law, and what will become clear with this letter is that the Galatian believers are at best badly confused and at worst are almost completely seduced by these Judaizers, these people that that wouldn't necessarily. you know, want them to say, "Hey, you know, your your commitment to Christ is bad." Um, your, you know, they wouldn't denigrate any of that. They would just say, "What Paul gave you is just about ninety percent enough." There's, there's about ten percent to your walk with Christ that you're missing, and it's following the Mosaic Law, because Jesus was Jewish. Uh, the whole family of God up to this point has been Jewish, and so there's this kind of easy thought. Wouldn't God want all his future believers in his new covenant to obey his law? And so the Judaizers taught a Jesus plus religion. They didn't deny that Jesus was the Son of God. Like I said, they were just adding to it. And so Paul is in this state. If you ever watch sports, you've seen the scenario. The game's on the line, and the the timeout is called out. It's called, and the players gather breathlessly around the coach, And the coach's words are punctuated with urgency. He doesn't smile. He gestures emphatically to the clipboard. The outcome of the game hangs on the line. Paul is like the coach on the sidelines. And he's just called timeout right in verse 6. Like, hey, I greeted you. Now let's get to business. Why are you trading in the gospel that I've given you with a different one? He's flabbergasted that the very believers that he had discipled was, uh, were such easy prey to these false teachers. Had he not taught the truth, had, he not glad- had they not gladly listened, did they not welcome the liberating truth of the gospel into their hearts? How could they then so quickly abandon it? The word deserting is a military term that refers to a traitor who leaves an army leaves the army of his own country and goes and fights for the enemy. In this case, it it meant leaving the gospel of grace for the gospel of salvation by your own works and effort. Paul is hearing that they were deserting the gospel of Christ, providing everything needed to be made right with God for a gospel that says it's not enough. It's a man-centered attempt to attain salvation and as such... It appeals to our natural pride and our desire to think that we have contributed something to our own deliverance. There's nothing we can do to merit our own salvation. And all our efforts to attain salvation by doing good actually moves us in the wrong direction, away from Christ. Until we're willing to give up our we-try-harder attitude and simply cry out to God, For mercy, we can never be saved. This insight is at the heart of the famous 12-step program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You must admit that you are powerless to change and that you are in the grip of something that will destroy you. But alcohol is only one manifestation of a deeper sin problem that plagues all of humanity. Sin has us in its grip, and no amount of religious activity or self-reformation can save us from ourselves. We are doomed and damned unless Christ rescued us from our sin. And this is a shocking truth that many people cannot swallow, cannot accept. That is why grace is counterintuitive. It forces us to admit what we don't want to admit, that we're in trouble and there's nothing we can do to help ourselves. However, the Judaizers tapped into that natural desire we feel that makes us uh, want to contribute something to make us right before God. And in the case of the Gentile believers, or the Galatian believers rather, it was circumcision and obeying the Mosaic law. It's clear that Paul will not tolerate a false teaching in the church. For Paul, if you tolerate a false teaching about the gospel, you're actually deserting Christ himself would be kind of Paul's conviction here. And then in verse 8, he goes, says, but if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Man, coming in strong. We're only in verse 8, and he's already cursing these teachers that have come in man, that's strong. And then he repeats himself. Just so you're clear, anybody who's coming in preaching a false gospel than the one Paul gives, man, he's accursed. Man, these are some of the strongest words in the whole New Testament. Accursed, the Greek word is, we actually use it, and I used it earlier, anathema. Anathema, accursed, which comes from a Hebrew term which means devoted to destruction. It basically means to reject something completely and condemn it to destruction. Paul reacted against all forms of legalism with force and focus, calling for those teachers who teach such lies to be a curse. Man, that's such strong language. He's trying to be very clear. But such attacks by Paul did not seem to be shocking when we pause to consider what's at stake By substituting man-centered performance as the basis of being made right with God, the very essence and foundation of Christ's redemption is put in jeopardy. It's compromised. It's twisted. It's perverted. So, the Judaizers, while they may not uh, have had a solid, tight argument against Paul, usually when we don't have a nice argument with evidence and facts, You turn towards what? Assassinate the character. Assassinate their character. I might not be able to tear down the message, but I can attack the messenger. And so that's what these Judaizers began to do. They began to accuse Paul of, you're compromising our full gospel. So therefore, gospel, what Christ did on the cross, but then added to your obedience to the Mosaic law, you combine those two things and that's what saves you. They were saying Paul was a compromiser. He was a man pleaser. He didn't want to strap the Gentiles with the Mosaic law, even though he knows they should be, and so therefore he's compromising. He's a man pleaser. He's giving in to the Gentiles. Oh, So, to that reply, Paul says this in verse 10. "For I, For am I now seeking the approval of man... I just came out with the strong opening salvo, y'all, like, hey, I'm pretty clear as to where I stand. Am I t- now trying to, or am I now seeking the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Man Paul wrote as he did because he cared deeply for the eternal welfare of these young disciples in these infant churches he cared so much that he dared to tell them the hard truth about the judaizers and their false gospel it would have been easier to overlook the issue or just bring something up or let's talk about some nice things or, or, or let's let's remember that one person no he has to get to the heart of the matter because things are on the line human nature that desires to twist the truth in order to denigrate God or demean God and elevate man. That's usually when we, t- we twist the gospel. We say, man, we, he's not all that great, but we really are. And so we have actually something to bring to God. But for Paul, he risked everything, including their friendship, in order to save them from eternal destruction. Because he cared more for the the approval of God rather than men, he spoke the truth. And so now in the coming weeks, we're going to see more and more of this response from Paul about the gospel-twisting issue of the law mixed with faith. And Paul will drop on us some profound truths about Christ, ourselves, and living in freedom. But I want to zero in, uh, just as we kind of uh, wrap up here this morning, I just want to uh, zero in on the last verse here as we kind of come in for a landing. An important piece of living free in Christ. And it's addressing our fear of man and man-pleasing and being a servant of Christ. So two things. Man-pleasing. Man-pleasing is a prison. It's a prison. Uh, My uh, my, my dad's side of the family were all uh, kind of uh, medical servants. So uh, doctor, OBGYN, dentist, nurses, lots of nurses. And so kind of my whole father's side is filled with caregivers. And, um, and uh, I remember my dad, uh, in seeing patients, he goes, man, the one thing I do is I never say anything that will offend them, ever. 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 I never bring anything. We just kind of, because if I did, my practice would suffer. And that's kind of what I was, that was kind of the line I was given, the tool that I was given from my father about how to interact with the outside world. Not the only tool. I don't want to reduce it. I had a tremendous father. Uh, But that was one of the lessons I kind of walked out of the house with at 18. That I, that. Okay, I, I, I have a purpose, I think. I have meaning in m- my life. But uh, I better not kind of overly offend people. And so I became very sensitive. I dialed my sensitivity up to 11. Uh, and um, that's kind of an older generation. That's an 80s movie. Anyway, uh, but I turned my sensitivity way up. And when I became right with God, when, I, when God rescued me at age 19... I still had that, and it didn't go away. It was as if God had healed me of all these other things, but kind of left some some big old boulders on the wilderness, like, that I had to kind of traverse by and traverse through and allow God, and I think sometimes maybe the grace of God that God doesn't handle everything in us right when we come to know Him, or I think I would have exploded, like, I... But God is so gracious to just bring up these issues. But man-pleasing, uh, I would say, has been one of my biggest struggles in walking with Christ. And uh, what, what, what happens with uh, man-pleasing, man-pleasers make idols of other people. And thus they crave their approval as though it were the bread of life. But in idolizing other people and their approval... They ultimately idolize themselves. They make idols of themselves, and thus contend for the approval of others to feel whole. That's what man pleasing is. Martin Luther, and so I, I you know. Just to kind of wrap up the story, you know, it's been a, it's been a consistent, continual walk. I still feel I have a little fear of man still in me. So there's this kind of like humble walk with the Lord to say, God. I don't want to walk with this man-pleasing because it shuts down, it imprisons the spirit that you gave me. Martin Luther uh, in 1500 said this, to this day, you will find many who seek to please men in order that they may live in peace and security. They teach whatever is agreeable to men, no uh, no matter whether it is contrary to God's word or even their own conscience. So it's been maybe a state of humanity <laughs> ever since the gospel landed that we have a tendency to want to please people. And in that process, we worship ourselves and we diminish the gospel and the spirit of God in our life. And there's a cost to living in and walking and declaring God's truth out in the world. I love how English evangelist George Whitfield responded to criticism Uh, He was alive right before the Revolutionary War. He was an English evangelist and uh, impacted many, many, many people that came over to America. He received a vicious letter one day, and his letter was accusing him of wrongdoing. His reply was brief and courteous. He said this, I want to thank you heartily for your letter. As for what you and my other enemies are saying about me, I know worse things about myself than you will ever say about me. With love in Christ, George Whitfield. Man, I love that, don't you? Like, there was, just, there was just no defense in his heart. He wasn't going to like, man, just because I got criticism, oh man, I'm going to launch that. Sometimes our innate reaction, if you get rejected, you tend to reject others. And sometimes if you know that rejection's coming... And you can kind of anticipate it. You can reject him first. Save yourself the heartache. But I love this. I love this response. It comes with the humility that, man, I am, I am more messed up than you think I am. <laughs> I appreciate your feedback. <laughs> love in Christ, you know? I mean, I'm just like... But it's just so freeing because we live in a world that doesn't live like that. And sometimes it's hard for us to live a different way when we haven't seen that different way modeled before us. And I think about just the call of God on this generation and what the gener- this generation needs it needs models, it needs fathers and mothers, younger brothers older brothers, older sisters coming together and as a family training and equipping each other. It's iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another that we may be used as God's vessels in the time, in the short, brief time that we have on this planet. Paul calls himself a servant. And this is where I want to pivot. This word servant is, again, it's just, like the whole letter, it's packed with spiritual dynamite. Calls himself a servant. Actually, the word is bond servant, bond slave. The Greek word is doulos. Deo means to bind. Or, no, no, deo doesn't mean to bind. Deo means to. It means the Lord. So I don't know. Uh, some commentary that I got that on. Anyway, uh, it's an um, it's an individual bound. Uh, to another in servitude, uh, in a the, in the, in the sense, what's a bond servant? It's someone who was a slave before, and they came to a place where they were set free. And after they were set free, they voluntarily turn and to their master. Now, whether it be a new, maybe the master they had before, or the one that set them free, they turn to that master and they say. I voluntarily give my whole life to do whatever you want. And in the same way are we not the same, once enslaved, now set free? And then turning to the one who rescued us and we voluntarily bound ourselves or bind ourselves to our redeemer and leader. That's what Paul says that he's become. He's become a do-loss, a bound bondservant. Doulas conveys the idea of a slave's close binding ties with his master, belonging to him, obligated to him, desiring to do his will, and in a permanent relation of servitude. In some, the will of the Dulas or the servant is consumed by the will of the master. They wake up every day and say, what you got for for me today? And their eyes are to, I'm, let's go. All right, you got that? You got that? All right, I'm ready. We who bear the name of Jesus need to learn that the surest way to lose the favor of the Lord is to seek the favor of the world. And there's a process that God has every young disciple in his kingdom. He begins a process of of taking the love of the world out of your life and replacing it with the love of God. Amen. Amen. Come on. But we need that. We need that confrontation. We, you need that confrontation. We all need that confrontation in our hearts. The more... Uh, uh, well, I got time. So there's this uh, story of this young violinist And uh, he was trained by uh, a world-renowned master violinist. And he had a big reputation. And so this young student trains under this master violinist, and uh, he goes to his first performance. And filled auditorium, and uh, he begins playing. And at the end of his master for performance... He did very well. The whole crowd stands up and cheers and and gets the applause of the entire crowd. But you can see the face of this young violinist. After he got done playing and as he was standing there uh, seeing and hearing the applause of men, it's as if he didn't hear any of it because his eyes were fixed upon only one person in the room. It was of his master. And at the end, as the applause went up, he waited. And then his master finally stood up and gave him a round of applause. And only then did his heart feel secure again. Because that young student did not care about the applause of men, but only the opinion of his master. The more Christ pleases, the more earnestly we seek to please him in all we say or think. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. The deeper and sweeter our communion with Jesus, the more resplendent is any suggestion of compromise with sin or conformity to a world that is an enmity, that is a an enemy, an enemy of God. If I please men, I should not be a servant of Christ, Paul says. Men will never be transformed by the gospel that is cut to the style of the culture or the tastes of the crowd. Whenever we do, the power of the gospel gets sucked out. Souls that want to be flattered need to be flattened. Steer clear of a deluded gospel that flatters rather than flattens the pride of men. Let us not think to advance the cause of Christ by whittling down the truth. When tempted to tone down our message for the whims of man or the whims of this world, let us tune up the message and up our ears and our heart and our sensitivity to the powerful truth of Jesus and the gospel. And that Jesus is man's only hope for wholeness and true freedom. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for just this opening powerful word from Paul to these Galatians that were getting caught up in a different gospel, getting caught up in something that is not you, and Lord, I just pray that you would, uh, Lord, in these next few weeks, birth a conviction in us that we will be ones solely held to your truth. God, that, 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 Lord, what we hold on to is your gospel and your gospel only. Lord, I just pray that, Lord, if there's any of us here that struggle with the fear of man, with struggle with uh, man-pleasing, God, I pray that... Lord, today, these next few weeks, God, that you would bring us into freedom. God, that you would bring us into a new place of freedom than what we've experienced before. Father, that that if there's uh, if there's, God, if there's just, do you ever feel that? I mean, just keep your eyes, I mean, just kind of still prayerfully, but it's like, man, you feel that prison. Do you feel that prison that If you were to kind of say something a little bit out of place, but that needs to be said. If you were to kind of post something a little out of place, but needs to be said. If you were to kind of do something that needs to be done, that's not being done. That man-pleasing will keep you imprisoned. So, how do we come God, we bring this to you. We bring this to the foot of your cross. God, we bring this man-pleasing. God, we bring this need in us to look for the approval of others and then, God, looking at it so long that we feel that we're not whole unless we have full approval by those around us. Father, I pray that you would just crucify that in our heart. And Father, I pray that you would replace it with the heart of a servant. That God, our call is here not to please men, but to please the one who redeemed us. God, I pray that you would put in us a new mindset and a new way and a new thought process. And God, that you would just do your transformation in us to bring us to be your doulos. God, bring us to be your servants, your bondservants. That God, because you set us free from a life that we were enslaved to, God, we turn voluntarily to you to say, God, I trust you because of what you've done in my life. I give you the reins of my heart. I let you be the forgiver and leader and the one that saves me. Father, do your best. Do your best in our heart to pull out what you made in us and do your worst on the things that are holding us back. Lord God, I pray, Lord, in these next few weeks, open up your word, open up our hearts, and help us be set-free people out in the world being lights and luminaries in this generation. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we hope this message has inspired you and challenged you to be the man or woman he's called you to be now and to see his kingdom grow in every area and arena of life. God is with you more than you know. For more information about our community here in Kansas City, please visit us online at citylifekc.org, and we'll see you next time on the City Life Podcast.